Our New Testament reading this morning comes from Galatians chapter 1. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how I intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia, and later I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. This is the word of the Lord. We're continuing in our study of Galatians, new freedom, new life, and new creation. And this morning we're looking at the idea of new calling. What does it mean to be called into a new relationship with God? And as we begin that, would you pray with me? Dear Lord, I don't know where everyone is coming from this morning, but undoubtedly they share the same human condition that I do that is constantly plagued by many different things. Plagued by fear, anxiety, worry, insecurity, anger, doubt. Father, we can't conquer these things on our own. We need you. Father, wherever we find ourselves this morning, if Galatians is a book that we have looked through, read through, studied many times, whether this is completely new to us, whether we're surprised that we're sitting here in church this morning, Lord, wherever we find ourselves, I pray that you would find us, that you would minister your grace to us, that you would call us again by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, you couldn't step into a Presbyterian church without hearing an illustration from the Chronicles of Narnia or Lord of the Rings. And so back in those days, I thought I was too unique and too cool to use an illustration from one of those because everyone else was doing it, but now I can. Um, (laughs) Any uh, Chronicles of Narnia fans here? Um, First one who can tell me, what is the name of book five? Come on. Horse and His Boy. Horse and His Boy. One of the most unusual books in the series and probably my favorite. And in the book, there's a short speech by Hermit, uh, the Hermit of the Southern March, and he's talking to Bree. He's giving a short speech to Bree, the talking horse, who is finding his way back to Narnia after being uh, in slavery. 
And he'd been living in slavery with all of these run-of-the-mill horses and had bragged about being a mighty war horse. But on his journey to Narnia, he had been frightened at a very critical moment. And he's so ashamed that he considers going back to Callerman to become a slave again because he had disgraced himself. And the hermit says to him, my good horse, you've lost nothing but your self-conceit. No, no, cousin, don't put your ears back and shake your mane at me. If you are really so humbled as you sounded a minute ago, you must learn to listen to sense. You're not quite the great horse you had come to think from living among poor dumb horses. Of course you are braver and cleverer than them. You could hardly help being that. It doesn't follow that you'll be anyone special in Narnia. But as long as you know you're nobody special, you'll be a very decent sort of horse on the whole and taking one thing with another. So this is a message that's very contrary than what we hear in school and in the media, in advertising. In fact, we hear the exact opposite, that you're very special, you're very unique, which is true as far as it goes, but attached to that is that you are so exceptional and that you should set yourself apart from everyone else by doing something incredible. You can do anything that you set your heart and mind to. So no pressure. Everyone is told, preached to this message that everyone should aspire to something really, really, really special. And so we feel plagued by our ordinary lives. We feel plagued by the mundane, that we're not someone that is memorable. We're not someone, quote-unquote, important. And it makes us competitive. It makes us anxious people because we know that if everyone is special and everyone is unique, then no one is. So while we're working to distinguish ourselves, at the same time we have this sneaking suspicion that we're just the same as the schmo over in the cubicle next to us. Now we're looking at this issue of calling. And though it may seem counterintuitive at first, we're going to examine our calling through the lens of someone else's calling, who on the opinion of history was indeed someone very special, very unique, whose influence is felt 2,000 years after his life. And you think I'm going to say Jesus. We'll get to that. But no, we're looking at the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to the Galatian churches. And Paul had an encounter with Jesus, such an encounter that from that he had an almost unprecedented effect on the course of human history. If we look carefully at these verses, we can identify four things Four ways in which Paul's calling is very similar to our calling if we are a Christian. We can see where the basic storyline of Paul, Paul's life, his storyline can give our storyline some direction. So the first thing I want you to see, Paul's calling, similar to yours if you're a Christian, is thir- verse 13. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism. Paul sees a very radical distinction between the life that he lived before and the life that he lives now. Christianity isn't something that he's taken up, but it's taken him up. It's not a new hobby. It's not a new spiritual exercise. It's not a new regimen. It's something that has completely transformed his life. He's experienced something we call a conversion, something so radical that he talks about it elsewhere as a new birth. He's been transformed. He's been converted from his former way of life, he says, in Judaism. Now, this wasn't just run-of-the-mill, everyday Judaism that he's talking about. His Judaism was very exceptional. 
And he was special even within the very devout, very serious sect of Phariseeism. They were very serious people, very devout, very pious, intent on bringing the kingdom of God fully upon the earth by their exceptional purity and devotion and bringing that purity and devotion across Israel so that God would have to recognize them and come down again fully with his kingdom. And Paul had, beyond that, an incredible, extraordinary pedigree. He grew up in an exceptional religious home. He was highly educated. He was mentored by the most revered teacher in Israel. He wasn't a black sheep. He wasn't a prodigal son. He was the good son. He made his parents proud and his community proud. But that wasn't even enough. He wasn't content to just encourage his fellow Jews in their piety he saw everyone outside as a threat. And, he, and so he violently opposed this new religion, this new sect called Christianity. Paul was obsessed with making the world orderly and proper and making people good by any means necessary. If they wouldn't be good on their own, he would make them good or they would pay. But something was wrong. Something was wrong in this approach to God, in this approach to spirituality. All of his learning, all of his piety, all of his religious duty didn't lead him to God, but it led him to fear and to violence and to anger and hatred. At the end of T.H. White's story on King Arthur, Guinevere, King Arthur's queen, is an old woman, and she's now in a cloister of nuns. And White says of her, she never cared for God. She was a good theologian, but that was all. She never cared for God. She was just a good theologian. Paul was too busy with his religion, too busy with his theology to have time for God. And our religion, our piety, our theologizing can often be a distraction to really knowing God. And what Paul realizes and what a Christian realizes is that the gospel critiques our religion and our piety as much as it critiques our irreligion and our rebellion. Paul was far from pagan. He did everything that was expected of him. He was every parent's dream child. He was very obedient, very moral. He made all the right choices in high school, and yet he was far away from the living God. His religious fervor actually led him away from an encounter with God. And it took Jesus stepping into his life in a very dramatic way to shake the cobwebs out of Paul's head and let him get it. He received it by revelation. I introduced this sermon by saying that Paul's story can illuminate our own, but maybe this sounds a bit foreign to you. Maybe this idea of organized religion is something that is very distant. It leaves a distaste in your mouth. Maybe you don't see yourself as that religious of, the, of a person. So maybe it's not the, the fervency of your, your prayer life. It's not your devotion and your piety that are hurdles and barriers to relationship with God. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's something else that you use to distinguish yourself from other people, to set yourself apart, to set yourself up that you can look down at other people. Maybe it's your degree that you got in school. You were one of the fortunate ones to get into a great institution, and you've got this diploma behind you every day at work that says you are special. You have achieved something. Maybe it's your political activism. Maybe it's how different you are from your parents. 
Maybe it's your theological views that you think set you apart from all the other hoi polloi. Well, Paul encountered a Savior. Paul encountered a King. Paul encountered Jesus who radically relativized all of his pious good works. And he was converted from a religion that was constantly trying to go up to get to God to a religion that came down, that was revealed to him, that came upon him. And that's the first thing that if you're a Christian, you have common with Paul, have in common with Paul, that you've come to hold your good works and your piety with as much suspicion as you do your sin. They can be equally problematic. In a very moral culture, Paul exceeded everyone, but it it led him away from God, not toward God. So first of all, we see one thing we have in common with Paul's calling, if you're a Christian, that you've been converted from your previous way of life. In Paul's case, it was Judaism. Secondly, you've been liberated by the will of God. Verse 11, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. And if you remember from last week, verse 1, Paul is an apostle, not from men or by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. You are made, you are drawn into the community You were liberated, not by your own will or decision or merit, but by the will of God. In these verses, Paul is telling us that his conversion isn't something that he came up with. It wasn't just a good idea that someone shared with him. It's not not done to please anyone. In fact, for Paul, the very easiest thing he could have done to please people would have been to stay within Phariseeism. He was very good at it. He was looked up to, revered by everyone. This is the exact opposite thing that he would want to do if he was out to please people and to win a good reputation. But he received revelation from Jesus. Jesus inserted himself into Paul's story. You see, grace comes, as we said in the baptism, to people who aren't looking for it oftentimes and who don't deserve it. And Paul, then, is no longer the one who does things for God, but God does things for him. God is not the background in which Paul lives his life, but Paul, Paul is the one who is called, who is moved, who is made. He's decidedly unspecial in the sense that Jesus has laid his affections upon Paul, not because of something Paul had to offer or barter, not because of Paul's intrinsic goodness. Paul was merely a recipient. And that's true of you if you're a believer, if you're a Christian. And this is radically humbling. Because, see, the people among us with the six-figure income and the white picket fence and the well-done yard and the bright and shiny new car are on equal footing as the person who is just out of rehab, rejected by their family, the black sheep. They're on equal footing, equally in need of God's grace, and equally can be recipients and stand before Jesus as equally loved. However, and this is important, We've talked about how this doesn't mean Paul's special, but neither Paul nor you are something incidental to God's plan. No matter your story, you were, you were set apart. You were pre-loved by God, that he looked upon you with a great big smile on his face and said, I love this person, and I want to be with them. 
And so you're not special because of your own merit, but you are very special because God has laid his affections upon you. God has created you in his image and has set you apart if you belong to him. He says in verse 15, but when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, being called by his grace doesn't mean that God looks around and sees everyone who will serve his purposes best and then singles them out, but that God's capacity for, for love is so large that he calls us not in order to get something from us, but to give something to us. That is his grace. It says he was pleased, verse 16, to reveal his son in me. He was pleased to do it. What a surprise for Paul. God was not this distant, stern God who was waiting for Paul to do stuff, but God was pleased to grant him his presence. And also, and this is important, not only to Paul, but to all of those who Paul deemed as unworthy of receiving God's grace. Realizing this is a gigantic step into freedom because you, you're downgrading your own unique importance and recognizing again and again that God's moving into your life as an act of grace and not of recognition. You have nothing to barter with God, nothing more than the drug addict, the sexually confused, the socially challenged, the one with personality disorders, the panhandler asking you for money when you walk out of here. You have nothing more than them to barter with God. And yet, he equally says, come into my grace. Receive my grace. Become mine. Converted from your previous way of life, liberated by the will of God. Thirdly, like Paul, like his calling, you've been invited into a new story. You have a new story to tell. He says he didn't go to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but he went into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Then after three years... He went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, or Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. He spent time with Peter, but notice there's quite an interim between the time of his conversion when he becomes a Christian and his beginning journeys as a missionary. And piecing things together from the epistles and from the book of Acts, it seems that he was in Damascus for three years, but possibly in Arabia for 10 years. So you have 13 years between when Paul is converted to when he, he begins these missionary journeys. 13 years after his conversion. Okay, first of all, we learn that this isn't easy stuff. It's not easy to just become a missionary. It's not easy to become someone who understands the gospel and can give it away, especially vocationally. But secondly, and this is important for all of us, is that for quite some time he was doing something other the missionary work. He seems to have had some ability at tent making. And so perhaps that's what he did for these years as he learned the gospel, as he read the scriptures afresh with new eyes, as he looked back at his scriptures through the lens of Jesus and his conversion. Through these years, he was certainly doing that, but also just probably doing a trade. And the point is, is that even Paul, the great missionary apostle, validated all kinds of work as equally valid and special. You see, there's a, a division of labor in Christianity, but there's not a hierarchy of, a, of importance. 
But then notice, he spent 15 days with Peter. Who is Peter? Peter was converted. He was one of uh, Jesus' disciples. He was Jewish. He was one of Jesus' primary disciples. He was also a bit of a racist. He hated Gentiles. He viewed them as sub-Christian, if not subhuman. And even being with Jesus for those years, walking with him, this trait, this suspicion was something that was very difficult to do away with in his life. And we see in Acts 10, the Holy Spirit calls him to go and eat with a Gentile and in his home. And Peter protests, certainly, Lord, you don't want me to go and eat with this dirty, nasty scoundrel. Well, it's difficult to imagine the significance of this for Peter, um, but imagine for yourself the worst person you can imagine, the person that's pushing people out of Syria, the person in your life, the parent that you can't stand to be around, the person at work who has betrayed you. Imagine the worst person that you can think of, the person farthest from God, the person that you can't think of offering any affirmation, and then you're being told to go and tell them that they're loved by God and accepted into His kingdom if they will come then you might get a hint of the barriers that Peter was called on to jettison. It wasn't just his personal racism. It was this big tradition that he had inherited that separated people. And we'll get to that very directly in chapter 2 because that's one of the linchpins, one of the most important pieces of Galatians that Paul is drawing together what tradition and religion had drawn apart for hundreds of years. Paul comes to Peter and he visits with him. That's what our translation says. But the underlying word is hystereo. And in colloquial terms, that basically means to sit down and swap stories with one another. So imagine Peter and imagine Paul. They've put some coals on the fire. They're reclining. They've kicked their feet up and maybe cracked open a bottle of wine. They're sharing stories. They're sharing their personal histories, their encounter with Jesus, and their stories were very, very different and very much the same. Peter was this gritty, profane, ungodly person. Paul was a very sophisticated, very urbane, very educated religious person. One converts from a life of sin, the other converts from a life of religion. Totally the same and yet totally different. Each of them were equally trapped within their own story, and each of them was equally drawn into a new story that they longed to tell, that they longed to share with one another. What does this mean for us? Well, it means like Peter, like Paul, we need places to share our stories. We need places to rehearse the story that we've been told and that we now inhabit if we're a Christian. We need that confirmation that what we feel is legitimate and healthy, that we're not, in fact, delusional. We need to hear other stories so that we don't grow to demand that our story become a model that others have to conform to. We have to see God's grace reaching into different types of people, different ages of people, different socioeconomic groups, different races and ethnic groups. We need to see that. We need to hear their stories to know that ours is totally different and yet totally the same. We're all unique, and the individual parts of our story are something to be celebrated. But no individual story is meant to be lived privately. It's meant to be shared. 
It's meant to be told. It's meant to be used to invite other people to experience that story. Paul's story overflowed into Peter's story and vice versa. There was something to be learned, something to be considered, something to be benefited from by hearing each other's story. Friends, we we need places to tell our stories. We need places that we can share our struggles and share our doubts without fear of being reprimanded without fear of being considered a second-class citizen. And we want to experience that here. We need to tell our stories here. We have stories of grace that we invite people up to share their stories with the congregation. We need to learn our stories and hear different stories here. But we also have places outside of that in our community groups. Those are meant to be places of safety, places that you can rehearse your story and hear other people rehearse theirs and be mutually edified and strengthened and sharpened. So I encourage you, if you, if you haven't yet stepped into a community group or an affinity group or a Bible study connected within town, please talk to me and let's figure out how to make that happen. We all need places to share our stories. So fourthly and finally, three things that we've seen in Paul's calling that is similar to ours, that he was converted from his previous way of life. He was liberated by the will of God. He was invited into a new story. And then finally, and quickly, we are made missionaries. Paul was made a missionary, and we share that if we are Christians. Verse 21, he says, Then I went into Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Paul's calling, his conversion, gave him a job to do in the world. He finds ways to say to others what has been said to him and for him. He longs to tell others for the first time the very opposite of what he's been telling people for his life. He longs to tell them that God is for us and not against us, that the living God set apart every one of us to receive His mercy and blessing, and that in the death, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that the bonds of sin have been broken once and for all. Not all of us can or should be a missionary like Paul. Some of us need to hear this. Some of us need to hear, be nobody special. Some of us need to hear, do your job, take care of your family, clean your house, mow your yard if you have one, read your Bible, attend worship, love your kids, be generous, laugh with your friends, drink your wine heartily, create beauty. The nobody, the fact that you're told you're nobody special may be one of the most liberating things that you can hear. Because why? Because you can just be yourself. You can just inhabit the calling that God has for you right now and not see it as any less important or less virtuous or less honorable than anyone else and what they're doing. You can just love God, love others, be someone normal. You don't have to be anyone else's idea of what is special, and you can be okay with that. You may not have been called to go to Syria and Cilicia You may not have been called to a missionary vocation, but if you're a Christian, you've been called to a missionary life. And we have been called as a church, as in town, to be a missionary church. 
that is going out and reaching out and sharing the story that we tell each and every Sunday here. So in your, in your relationships, you can tell the story of a changed life. You don't have to go to seminary. You know what's happened in your own life. Tell that story. It's valid. And you can find ways to say what has been said to you. The hermit told to Bree, as long as you know this, you're nobody special. You'll be a very decent sort of horse on the whole, taking one thing with another. And friends, that's what God expects of you. You don't have to be something special to get God's attention. You don't have to be uniquely significant to, in fact, be uniquely significant because God has named you. God has called you. God has made you. God has converted you. God has looked upon you with delight and said, mine. They are mine. I love them. And he communicated that verbally and in the person of his son so that we could believe it in our deepest parts of who we are. So he sent and was pleased to give you his son, to send him to die in your place, to tell you that you are something special to him. Now live out of that love. Live out of that approval. You're free to be yourself. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, so many of us, in fact, all of us struggle with wanting to be someone different at times, maybe all the time. We long to be important. We long to be recognized We long to excel in our field. We long for a great reputation. And the difficulty is some of this is good. Aspirations are good. Hopes are good. Wanting to have a good reputation, wanting to do something that is creative and benefits the world are, in fact, great things. But, Lord, we get them so tied up and intertwined with our own ego, with our own wants, that our own security, insecurity... Father, I pray that you would help us to untie those knots, that we could see that you have called us to a life that is great in service, that is great in dying, great in self-sacrifice, and that insofar as you do some, something incredible through us, we can celebrate that. But Father, let us be also content to be where we are, to be who we are, to be loved by you, even if no one else loves us. Lord, I pray that we would rest in that love, rest in that affection, rest in the fact that you tell us that we're special. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.